and welcome to Won't You Sing With Me, a podcast by me, Camille Harris from the Silly Jazz Band. Join me as I talk to fellow children's musicians about their work. Why do they make children's music? What's important about it? What makes a good children's song? What is different between a kid's song versus an adult song? And why do they do what they do? This is a podcast for fellow children's musicians, as well as educators and parents. But little ones can listen as well. Thanks so much for tuning in and enjoy the conversation. An exciting thing that can happen when you get a podcast is that you get sponsors. So here's the first one for Won't You Sing With Me. I had a bunch I could choose from, so I chose Blinjet because I love smoothies, but I don't love smoothie bar prices. With my Blinjet 2 Portable Blender, I can make smoothie bar quality beverages for a fraction of the price. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house. Lasts for 15 plus blends and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself. Just blend water with a drop of soap and you're good to go. There are a bunch of cool colors to choose from. I personally chose the pink. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. And be sure to use the promo code KINDYLOVE to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power, and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com com and use the code KINDYLOVE to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. Now on with the show! Today I'd like to welcome Katie Stone from the Children's Hour. The Children's Hour is a New Mexico-based nonprofit dedicated to producing high-quality kids' public radio. They produce and distribute high-quality children's media that's cultivated through community involvement and immersion. Their award-winning kids' radio program, The Children's Hour, can be heard on public radio stations across the United States and Canada. Their educational themes focus on STEM, civics, culture, history, art, and performance. They produce their shows with a crew of active volunteer kids who they call their kids' crew. Sometimes the programs are produced in collaboration with a teacher or school as part of their Radio Kids School project. They also collaborate with teachers at schools with a Title I designation where the students experience other challenges. The Children's Hours features young musicians, storytellers, scientific experts of all ages, and plenty of jokes. Welcome to Won't You Sing With Me, Katie. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks. Thanks so much. I I will uh, not sing with you. You probably don't want to hear me sing, although you you could hear me sing. Honestly, I want everyone to sing with me. (laughs) That's a pretty good intro. Uh, we're actually heard all over the world. Now we're in six countries, so it's oh, kind of cool. That's wonderful. Six countries. And growing. also just online, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I listen to your stuff on your website, so technically every country. Yep. And the right? moon. That's pretty great. Yeah, and the moon. Exactly. <laughs> the International Space Station. Yeah. So welcome. I'm so happy to be talking to you today. I am... I don't know if you checked out my project, Silly Jazz Band, but I have an album called Baby on the Subway, and I released it a couple years ago just as a jazz musician who had fallen into kids' music, you know, because I, I teach piano and I'd worked with children, um, and then I started getting hired to do stuff, and there was really no theory or thought behind what I was making. I just kind of made fun stuff for them, released it, put it into the world, and I have this, you know, project called Silly Jazz Band, but as I've started to get really interested in it, I've started to say, okay, I didn't go to school for early childhood education. I didn't, I, all this stuff I learned through practice, through working with kids, through experiencing them. Um, and I just kind of just was like, okay, now I'm making media for kids, but there wasn't, um, I think that I, I discovered and kind of naturally fell into some really important, ideas in the way and theories in the way that I made it. But I'm interested in exploring now what other people who make media for children, like what what your theory is or what your opinion behind what you do is and kind of what your thesis is when you're making media for kids. 
Well, everything we do is super intentional. So um, first of all, I started doing the show just as a volunteer at my local public radio station more than 21 years ago. And right away, when I went into the studio to produce this live Saturday morning or Saturday morning show where I was sort of taking over from somebody else and his model was, you know, he'd just go in and read books and have his kids in there, sometimes have guests, but really it was just kind of him and his kids. And I decided, I also had kids, but I decided that I really wanted to open up the studio to all kids. And to find a way to just give kids a place to come do radio for fun. And I really had, like you, no training. I was a parent. I just was feeling a need. And as I involved my community, and by the way, kids showed up and we started getting a core group of kids who would come every single week. And I trained them how to do engineering and hosting and production and you know, all the things that it takes to produce a radio show every single week. And a live radio show is a little tricky because there's a lot of sort of coaching on the fly, our guests. Now, flash forward to today, we have a very seasoned kids crew. I've worked with kids. Typically, kids join my crew and stick with me for years. And I only figured that out when I started inviting kids from the community. They just never went away. They came every single week, which was pretty cool. And I realized, you know, it just took me a couple of years to figure out, whoa, you actually, you're a mentor now. I didn't like think of myself that way. Um, But it's, it's this responsibility to um, really do your best by the kids you're working with and to try to understand the pedagogy of education uh, and best practices to really pull out the best of kids. Now, simultaneously, you know, kind at the same time as I was doing this, I had my own two young kids and both of whom got diagnosed with different disabilities, one Mm, with a physical disability and another one with autism. And so I started going through lots and lots of trainings about working with your kid with autism. And this is 20 years ago. There wasn't actually as much information as there is today. And Uh, Within a few years, I became an expert and was presenting on best practices for teachers and others. And um, and that kind of, I started getting very involved in policy regarding education, which just brought me into the room with lots of educators and thinking in the way an educator thinks. And, but I still had my parent hat on. And, you know, I'm, I also just found that when I worked with kids in the studio live, especially I had to push away the parents because I learned no offense to all the parents listening, but you guys actually (laughs) really get in the way of your kids speaking their true mind. And Mm -hmm. often parents would do things like come up and whisper, you know, ask a question, you know, and that would come through on the air. And, uh, (laughs) and I finally realized I had to kick out all the parents, which I did. Mm-hmm. I would just say, you know, if you bring your kids, you sit in this other room on the other side of this glass and go away. And um, and then I was able to really pull out the best in those kids. So I do everything with great intention now. I think about how we program, how I work with kids, my role in their actual lives as human beings. And then I'm also thinking about these other kids that are on the other side of the headphones on the other side of the speaker who are listening. So I'm having all of these different kids, you know, the audience kids, the participant kids, and, and then of course kids in schools. And here in New Mexico where we're based, we're really at the bottom of the barrel in terms of education. We're 50th out of 50 for most measures, reading level, math, teenage pregnancy, high school dropout rate, all of that. We're at the bottom of the barrel. So I am dealing with kids who often are just never given opportunities to really shine. They're so busy working on their basic math skills that there's not a lot of time in our schools here for fun stuff. So I figured out a way to partner with teachers to take what they're already doing in class and turn it into radio programming together where the kids build on what they're doing already. So it's not an additional project for the teacher, but 
I come in and make it cool and you put you on the radio to talk about what you do. And I right away made some rules. Like one of them is every kid participates. So we're a bilingual state and many of the classrooms I work with are bilingual classrooms. So kids come to me speaking no English whatsoever. We are an American radio, public radio station, not a span, an English language station, not a Spanish language station, although New Mexico is bilingual, as I've mentioned. So some of our shows are in Spanish. Um, And, you know, teachers would be worried about that. Like, well, how will anyone understand Marisol? She doesn't speak English. And then I would say, well, you know, you're at a bilingual class. I mean, you have a translator right next to you who's another kid. So that's exactly what we did. So we partner in a way where everyone's included, including kids who had very, very low skill levels. And we, you know, you can hear old shows where I partner with Title I schools where there's some kids who are you know, their parts are very small and they're barely getting it out. However, they participated and they were part of the whole group. And I really look down on anything that excludes kids. And I do that with my own crew as well. We make sure every voice in that room has some part of every single show. And even as we're editing, we're really conscious of that later. We're not live anymore. COVID kind of took us away from that. But my theory on working with kids is it's a lot about what what's unspoken, how we treat everyone, how we include everyone, how we model a respectful way of even the five-year-old has as much to say and give to what we're talking about as the 14-year-old and that, that everyone works together. And I, of course, have had situations where kids are bullying other kids or kids do things that are, and I pull those kids aside. I remind them that they are a model. I remind them that in the children's hour, it's not school. So you actually cannot get away with that. And if you continue, I can't have you come back because we're not going to hurt people's feelings. So I've never had to kick any kid off except for one many years ago. And he was 17 and he really was like old enough that I could kick him off. But he was kind of a bully. And and I had to ask him to go because he was kind of bullying little kids. So when it comes to working with children, It's really about meeting the kid where they're at, elevating them where they're at, and letting every child know how incredibly important they are as an individual and that they have something to contribute. And we find that that methodology really works. But we're also really thinking about other stuff too. Like our show themes are a lot about filling gaps, you know, that I know things aren't being covered in schools here. And maybe everywhere else I've learned because my own kids didn't get it. You know, we were learning about pilgrims in New Mexico schools, like all of us in the United States learn about pilgrims. Well, here in New Mexico, Europeans came here in 1530, about 150 years before the pilgrims. I could not understand why that, who cared? No offense, Massachusetts, but who cares about your pilgrims? There were actually like lots. And by the way, there's 25,000 years of human history here way before Europeans that is equally important. So we've done a lot to think about how, what, what we do, how we use our little hour. And how we make that hour the most fun, engaging, kids don't turn it off, parents don't turn it off, but at the same time, we're actually covering really important stuff. Um, And giving kids a chance to be the the experts and be the main interviewers and all that. Right. Uh, That's something I I really like in listening to what you had, hearing their voices and their questions. It doesn't sound like it's somebody, an adult scripted it for them. You know, it, it's they oh, no, ask, are asking no. the questions, and that's wonderful. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's that's, that's it's, pretty it's that cool. authenticity, right? Like, because yeah. that's what I was hearing. And when I listen, I'm a public radio producer, so I listen to a lot of public radio, and I hear sometimes, rarely, children's voices in public radio. And listen, all of you who are listening now. Listen in the future. Are those kids being tokenized, or is this an authentic inclusion of that of that person's that human being's person, personhood, personality, opinions, or is it just a token? Like we're going to talk to to Bob, you know, um, 
Bobby because, you know, Bobby's dad is a this. And we say, oh, how do you like seeing your dad on stage? Oh, it's fun. You know, I mean, that is not really getting the most out of that person, the child, and making that person, in their opinion, really what we care about. So I want to hear what kids actually are thinking. And I also want to help model for kids listening other ways of being around adults. So the kids on the children's hour they are the Terry Gross, you know, they are right. not, our, our interviewers may come and at- attempt to sort of talk down, or our guests may come and attempt yes. to sort of talk down to the kids in the room. They won't get very far because the kids just themselves just don't allow, I mean, they're, the kids are trained by me, so they're just so used to remembering that we control the interview. And, you know, I do, yeah. I give them lots and lots of like, you know, journalist public radio sort of tips. Like we, we don't need to hear a promotion of somebody's products. So when that starts happening, we interrupt. <laughs> we yeah, say, yeah. okay, thanks. But, but really what we wanted to talk to you about was blah. And, yeah. um, and I model that and now the kids will do that themselves. So the next step of all of this is, of course, teaching those kids how to do, be out in the field all by themselves with a microphone and a recorder and somewhere cool that they wanted to be to talk to somebody and get you know, an NPR level interview out of whatever, whomever. And we are there. We're, that's happening. Our kids have interviewed our governor. Our kids have interviewed, you know, all kinds of people in our state and around our community to get their perspective on something. And we had the very first and perhaps only serious interview with Fauci. I had heard Fauci. You might remember that one time Fauci, like a little kid was like, you know, uh, asked Fauci a question. It was like in a, maybe in December of 2020. And this went all over this kid asking Fauci this like one question and how cute a kid asked Fauci a question. Well, you know, a mind like mine heard that and saw that and was like, oh no, 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 no. That is not what kids actually want to know. Kids want to know about this pandemic and whether or not they're going to live, why their grandma died, what what do they have to do to stay safe? They actually don't want like a trivialized little petty conversation. So we had this interview with Fauci and the very first question was asked by a four-year-old and that was quite <sighs> intentional. And by the way, when you interview Fauci, you have to submit all your questions in advance, which is very unusual for my kids. My kids were not thrilled with that. They were like, but we want to ask new questions. But the very yeah. first question went to this little four-year-old and her question was quite simple. Why should we be scared of COVID-19? And this was early 21. Oh, and, that's heavy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Coming from a four-year-old little, you know, why should we be scared of COVID-19? And, you know, he went from being this kind of the face of him in the interview. He went from being very stern to suddenly like the grandpa Fauci came out. And I think he oh, wow. like, snapped and changed and realized I am speaking to very, very, I don't think he realized kids would be that young. Um, and he he gave us a serious interview. And it was a very serious interview. It was not trivial. It was not silly. That's kind of what we do. And we, you know, but we also do fun, silly things too. But a lot of working with kids is about, and, and we do this in our trainings for working with kids with autism. Um, but you know, it applies to all kids. It's meeting the kid exactly where they're at. Yeah. Meeting the kid exactly where they are at, not where you wish they would be. I mean, this is the secret to parenting too, by the way. It's not what you wish. You know, sure, we all want our kids to get in the car and get their shoes on, on and, and like not make us late to whatever we have to go to. But, you know, if the kid is, is going to be in the middle of a meltdown, you're not going to get the shoes on, you're not going to get in the car. So you got to meet the kid where they are at. Is it on the floor you know, puddling and melting and you need to like, you know, come down and say, okay, there's a problem, right? Let me hear what your problem is and really view whatever's going on with that kid as it is the most important thing going on in that kid's mind is what's going on in that kid's mind. (laughs) It's actually not whatever your agenda was. And we, and as parents, it's a very hard thing to let go of as we go from being autonomous adults to now suddenly we're, we're not <laughs> spirits. Right. And you have to find a way to not go crazy as you sort of turn over some of your autonomy to a tyrannical two-year-old. However, you're meeting that kid where that kid is at. And if you remember where a two-year-old is at, it's pretty basic needs, right? It's like food, sleep, love, comfort, fun. <laughs> it's really yeah. not 
it's not hard stuff, but it's hard in the moment as a parent to remember that they're not capable of logic. You know, we have to get your shoes on because we have to go to the dentist on time. You know, they don't care you have to get to the dentist on time. They actually were in the middle of their thing and you're interrupting them. So, you know, it's meeting them where they're at and also accepting the fact that um, it's not going to always be where we wished a person was at. And, and learning to readjust that wishing and those expectations so that they're realistic. So it is what you expect. You expect a two-year-old to act like a two-year-old. You expect a 14-year-old to be sullen sometimes and, and not and crabby. And that's okay. That's okay to be sullen and crabby. You might find out, for example, that the 14-year-old who won't go to school and is resisting and is ditching, there's a darn good reason for it. It might not just be that the 14-year-old is being a jerk, right? Like, so there's there's stuff that I really believe that I, I take from my other work of sort of learning how to manage difficult classroom behaviors and helping teachers sort of assess, you know, what's a problem and what they're doing versus what the kid is doing. Um, taking that and applying that to working directly with kids in radio too. And, and then also just providing a space that's their space, you know? parents don't right. get a say or with me. They get to volunteer. <laughs> they don't right. get a say. It's actually interesting. I'm kind of the pro so I'm kind of the product of a program similar to this, it sounds like. Mm. In Boulder, where I'm I'm from originally Boulder, Colorado, I was there were two programs I did. One was um called the Peanut Butter Players. It was a children's theater company and it was theater for kids by kids. And so it was run by a woman named Joanne Lehman. She was the director, but we, all the, the, you know, the stagehands were all kids. There were some parent volunteers, but in rehearsals, there were no parents to tell you how to do it. It was just her directing you as actors. And I did that every summer. And then I did the children's theater company. And so it was a similar space where there was no parents and it was us having to kind of rise to the occasion. And it was very empowering. I also did a program that's at the, it was at the Dairy Center for the Arts, is a place in Boulder, and it, it it was back. I did it, I think, one time, and it was such an amazing, magical space. I still remember it. It was, but it was a public access, so it was like we got to make a TV show, um, and it was kind of similar to this. Again, it was run by one person, no parents. It wasn't even a camp; it was like an after-school thing. But we got to interview, and I actually ended up interviewing that woman, Joanne Lehman, who was the director of my theater. Um, the theater program I did, but I I still to this day I, actually even when I got to college at Emerson College in Boston because of that Dairy Center for the Arts program for the public access TV I knew like just some small things and that was maybe eight years prior that I had done that you know going to college I think I was around ten when I did that but I still remembered certain things about being on set about you know rolling cables I learned all these things as a young person in this program that it was sounds really similar to you know but more of like a public access in the late 1990s <laughs> like in probably 98 or so you know that i i did that maybe 96 you know so it was different technology but um, i remember how empowering that was and yeah everyone who was part of it did participate and there were some kids who just wanted to hold the boom mic they didn't want to actually be on Right. You know. And that's okay. I, I mean, I had a kid on my crew who came with her two sisters and the youngest sister is an actress and very loquacious and, you know, just loves to be the ham. The oldest <laughs> daughter was, you know, a little quieter, but very serious and had fabulous questions every week for our guests. The middle daughter was silent. And after two years of this with the silent middle daughter. Like she'd come up to the mic and say, hi, it's Leela. You know, like that. I mean, that would be it. Like, and I'd have to be like, I can't hear you. Uh, and, uh, and so two years of this, two years. And the mom comes up to me and, you know, I'd been sitting on the other side of the glass and was like, I am just not going to bring her. I'm going to bring her sisters, but you know, it's two years and she does not, she just sits in the corner. I just can't stand it. And I said, you can't stand it. Does she like it? Well, she wants to come, but she's just, she doesn't want to participate. And I said, I tell you what, you can do what you want, but I would recommend that since you can't stand seeing her sit in the corner, that you turn your back and not watch anymore. <laughs> that was my solution. Yeah. I said, stop. Do not tell me you're not bringing her. 
If she wants to come, <laughs> I don't care that she's silent. I don't care. Right. I see her in the room. I try to pull her in, but that's okay. She's not ready. Well, I tell you what, within a year, this kid ran for student government president and it told her mom the whole time she had to walk up to the front of her middle school. And she was, she attended a really big middle school here in Albuquerque, like, you know, 1,500 kids. She had to walk wow. up to the front of that the assembly and give a speech. And the whole time she told herself, you can do this. You're on the children's hour. You can do this. <laughs> You're on the children's hour. She got up and gave her speech. Didn't win. Um, can't, you know, and, and sl had started to slowly, slowly participate more. Now, Flash forward another year, she reaches out to me. We had gotten a new governor and she said, I want to interview the governor. Can I go interview the governor? And I said, that's who interviewed the governor. That's, that's who interviewed the governor. The one who never talked for two years, whose mom was going to stop bringing her. And it, it was because it was hard for the mom to see that. Right. But it, that's the solution wasn't about the kid. It was hard for the mom to see that. I mean, I really, like yeah. said, you just told me it's hard for you to see, then don't see it. I mean, like, that's the solution. It's hard. Who is this hard for? And that's what we have to ask ourselves. What are we doing this for? Are we doing this for ourselves? Are we doing that? I mean, yes, I love service. It makes me feel great. So I do this mm -hmm. work a lot for myself, right? Like that's how we live in life. I model that sure. you know, yeah. we do good things in the world because it does make you feel good. On the other hand, everything we're doing when we work with kids is about those kids, those kids themselves and who's listening. And each one has some crazy, incredible story. You just never, never know. When I was trying to understand what was happening with kids with disabilities in my state, and my schools in my state, I got my substitute teacher license and started going into classrooms and what, you know, being the sub. Right. And I wanted, because I really wanted to see firsthand what happens to kids in schools and why are some kids always in trouble and it's always the same kids. And what could we do with those specific kids? So I would ask, did, you know, I would seek special education classrooms, which here in New Mexico are totally segregated, hor horrifically segregated. Really? I would ask for the difficult kids. I would get the difficult kids because nobody wanted to sub <laughs> with the difficult kids. And I would sit in my little day and try to problem solve what was really happening. And I learned a lot of things. I learned that this super terrible kid in one school who was so difficult for the teacher lived in a car. Oh, I only learned that because I yeah. started, I'm an interviewer. I just talked. I just was like, let's all talk a little bit of our lives. And I always start with my own kids. I'm the crew. I do mic checks by saying, let's talk about what you had for breakfast. I try to mm -hmm. a trick like that. Let's talk about what you had for breakfast. And one kid said, I had potato chips for breakfast. And all the other kids were like, oh, that's such a terrible breakfast. I can't believe your mom lets you eat potato chips. And he then said, well, it's what we had in the car. And that's when it hit me. This kid sleeps in his car. This kid sleeps in his car, comes to school, then gets in trouble for being a little emotionally Exhausted. dysregulated. Yeah. Because he's yeah. really tired because he sleeps in a car. Maybe he didn't even eat that morning. Maybe he didn't eat the night before. And the more I learned that every difficulty with any person has some bigger root that we often don't want to face the better it made me at working with kids because I started to just see any problem I had with any child ever as the consequence of something maybe I couldn't see. And, you know, I have a kid who I've worked with for years and she has dyslexia and it's pretty bad dyslexia. And there were pieces of our show here and there that did have scripted parts like, you know, who funds us and all that sort of thing. And I universally hand out scripts everybody's got these scripts. And I do know that there are hidden dyslexia people around me. And I knew there were on my crew too, but I also would intentionally give them very easy scripts. And at one point she said to me, I get really nervous when you ask me to do this because I always feel like I have to do it five times. And I said, oh, why is that? Because of my dyslexia. I said, oh, but see, I don't even have dyslexia. When I'm recording a script, I always do it five times. And she said, you do? I said, always. 
No one ever does it right the first time. They don't. And it was just so empowering for this kid. Well, she, I said to her, look, I can do two things. I can stop slipping you scripts because if it makes you uncomfortable, I'm not going to do that. Or I can tell you that you mess up, just do it over and over again. And you're modeling for the other kids that that's what we do. So she started yeah. the ladder. You know, she picked up the, we'll, we'll just... Mo- we'll just do it over and over. And she started modeling mm-hmm. that for the other kids who then felt totally liberated to start repeating things that they messed up. And, you know, this isn't a hard thing to deal with in audio editing. We can we can make it all sound really good in the end. So the point being, you just never know what's going on. People will present to you some one side that they think that you want to see. That's what we all do. What you want to see in me, I'm showing you right now. But the reality is there's this other side of me that is the other me that maybe I don't want you to see. The struggle I might have. Um, I'm in my pajamas. Did I want you to see that at noon on a Friday? I mean, there's things that, and what does that say about me? Well, uh, maybe I have bad time management in the morning on the Friday. Uh, I mean, we all have our place where we totally fall down. and. It's okay. It's got to be okay. Adults, yeah. I, I I think all of us can think back, like you think back to your time in acting, that the time of childhood is this super magical time, not only just because it's so much is going on like biologically and neurochemically and in our brains and with our neurology and our bodies, but also the people that we don't know very well, you know, our mentors, our teachers, strangers on the internet can have tremendous influence over us. And so we as adults working in the realm of kids have this incredible responsibility of remembering that it's the, it's the time that total stranger told me, Katie, you look terrible in purple that I am 54 years old. And I still remember a total stranger telling me you look terrible in purple. I haven't forgotten that. And every time I wear purple, which is frequent, I think of this total random stranger. I'm sure that they don't even remember saying that to me. But you know what I remember about that? That I never forgot the words of a strange adult. So that's why I'm super careful what I say on the radio, what I say Uh to all these kids and what I put out there because it's going to be remembered and it's going to be by somebody. And it may it may be just the thing that helps a person. And you never want to be just the thing that they, you know, 50 years later are saying, uh, I, I actually don't look bad in purple. And I really resent you saying that to me. Um, yeah, <laughs> sort of funny, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure every person listening could think of like the time somebody oh, yeah. said something, right? Absolutely. And, and like, yeah. I think, did you actually alter? Your, did I stop wearing purple? You know what I did for a couple years? Stop wearing purple. And then I realized, why am I letting this total stranger tell me what to do? I love purple. So. Now I have a question. What about the listeners? So how, where do you get your listeners? Um, do you get feedback from like the children listeners? Like how is it? only the people who make this stuff that, that are the primary listeners and how, and you talk about kind of thinking about presenting it for them. Are you guided by the kids crew to develop what the product is you're giving to the listeners or do they ever affect kind of what you create kind of, how does that, that relationship oh, work that the kids that are listening? Yeah. You know, it is radio is um, famously difficult to uh, assess who your listeners are, I mean, how would we know? I mean, you're turning on your radio. Um, I do know things statistically about radio listeners, and that is how I know, you know, how many listeners approximately we have every week and all that sort of thing. Um, But um, I get a ton of feedback from listeners. I have a number of ways to give us feedback, voice recorder and email and social media and, you know, so many different ways. Um, Mm -hmm. But... uh, I do hear from kids and I hear a lot from kids in my own community, whereas I see them more, right? Like, so if I go to the grocery store and I say, excuse me, can you tell me where the blah, blah, blah is? And some kid whips his head around and looks at me. I already know that that kid's a listener, right? Like that's just how it is. And I may even walk right up to him and say, hi. And if they have the nerve, they'll say, I know you. 
And I'll say, I know you know me. And then we get to have a fun little dialogue. But um, so I actually get to talk to a lot of people in my community, which is pretty great. For many years, we were producing shows. Half of our, all of our shows used to be live before COVID. And half of them were produced from community venues that were public. So we would have an audience. And that was a great way, you know, we would actually survey our audience. What do you like about the show? What you don't like the show? Why did you come today? And, you know, people who show up at a show that's a live show are going to be fans. So, um, but then we also would get people like we'd be in libraries and we'd get totally random people who never knew we existed, who just happened to be at the library. And so that was always really fun to get the feedback from them to find out what they thought. Um, but no, I take listener feedback very, very seriously, um, both from kids and others. Uh, I remember one time in my early career, a woman called me up at the radio station and said, Katie Stone, you say the word awesome way too much. <laughs> and I guess you have a, I'm a child of the eighties. So you could tell it's awesome, yeah. and totally awesome. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> They're probably right. Uh, and yeah. so, you know. I, I have just that. I, I, yeah, it's like things like that. But um, I I do hear from listeners, and it, it is a hard thing to get you know direct feedback. And I'm always asking people, tell us what you think. And I right. love hearing from listeners. I know that I'm succeeding with listeners and kids based on our dem- our listener stats. You know, we are very popular uh, of a radio show. We. Um, in our local demographic here in New Mexico, we trounce every other program on our station except for um, just, you know, like the NPR programs. So wow, okay. I know that we're really, really popular. And everywhere I go, I get introduced as Katie Stone, who does the children's hour and everyone nods and it's like, oh, I listen. Every <laughs> and so, um, so we, I get a lot of feedback directly because I live in a community where people, I, I'm also very out in my community, which isn't always the case with public radio people. Most public radio people that I know are pretty, you know, they don't, they're not actually really out there as much as I am. Um, they're kind of yeah, shy. I'd say it's Brian kind of a- Lehrer in New York is out here. Brian Lehrer yeah. from NPR. Yeah, he's yeah. out. I've seen him a lot. He's maybe yeah. like you. <laughs> but, but I don't know anyone. I've never seen anyone else. Yeah. No, because it's like we're famously, you know, shy and we're like, you know, we're on, we're in radio because we don't want you to see us and it's, it's a comfortable medium for the shy. However, I am very, very public. I am super engaged in my community. I'm I'm a governor appointee to our Developmental Disability Council here in the state of New Mexico. I serve as uh, vice chair of that, and so I'm you know testifying in our congression in our with our Congress people, with our legislators. I'm like I'm really out there. So I get a I I am a very I'm an extrovert, obviously, <laughs> and um. And I, I really love people. And so, yeah, that's how I get feedback. I, I just welcome it. I ask people. If people tell me that, that they listen to the show, I go right there to that uncomfortable question. How, and you wait. You ask this of your listeners. How do you like the show? <laughs> and you know what? You'd be surprised when people say. They'll be like, uh, well, you know. And recently someone <laughs> gave me feedback that I'm, I'm like actually having a hard time because it's it's like hurt my feelings. But I, I had oh, feedback no. from somebody who's uh, somebody I've known for decades here. And he came up to me and he said, Katie Stone. By the way, everybody always calls me Katie Stone as if that's like <laughs> one word. Katie Stone, I really liked your shows when they were, when you were first doing this and you weren't very good. And everything was really rough and the kids made tons of mistakes. I really liked those shows. I'm not so fond of these ones where they're really edited and they they all sound perfect. And I was like, yeah, well, stop listening then. <laughs> no, yeah, okay. Well, then go back and listen to the first ones. Uh, have fun. Know, exactly. <laughs> you can always like, listen oh again. <laughs> <laughs> but no, oh. I understand that. And I'm thinking about that feedback, actually. I'm thinking about what that feedback means in terms of authenticity and like, what am mm. I? Am I missing something? I really do. I try really hard to, after my feelings, pick them up, brush them off. And then I think, okay, now now what did that really mean? And and I think about how to integrate that back in. Do we want to have a lot of big mistakes in the show? I don't know. Anyway. There's so, so there's so much taste in that though. Like my husband, for example, he loves these like three hour long interviews with no editing, you know, just that go on forever, no music. That's the type of podcast he likes. 
and he really likes those. I'm going mean, to, he listens to the daily and other ones too, but I'm going to listen to radio lab. You know, I'm going to listen to these edited ones. That's what I prefer. You know, I like the like soundscape, like I'm listening to a movie, but he does not, you know, that's taste. I think that's, this guy maybe hey, likes so the re- more raw. He's got bad taste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell, tell him that I said that. <laughs> um, <laughs> one, one, one last question just about the listeners. Do you, what are the ages that listen to you? Are they? I have a, a quote unquote target audience. And part of that is that we are actually producing curriculum, durable curriculum that can be printed, used in the classroom, uh-huh. meets educational standards. We have a lot of our shows meet that. More and more of our future shows will have that. And that, um, and we're just beginning a brand new collaboration with New Mexico Public Broadcasting PBS, New Mexico PBS, to put Children's Hour curriculum and content on what's called PBS Learning Media, which is a really cool site if you've never heard of it, pbslearningmedia.org. Teachers use it. It's got curriculum, lesson plans, all kinds of great stuff. And they were particularly interested in a series we produced called A Brief History of the American Southwest for Kids. It is the only, the only curriculum, I'm just going to throw this out there, the only curriculum of the Southwest American history, which, you know, everywhere else in the country are like, well, who the heck cares about the American Southwest? Well, you might care because we actually like super predate all the other history um, and this series actually starts 23,000 years ago when the first humans were here. And um, and it doesn't even get to like Westerners until episode three. I mean, we we don't even get into because there's wow. so much happening. There's so much engineering and, and awesome things happening well before Europeans came along. So oh, absolutely. Um, I love to go to Mesa Verde growing up. You know, oh, learning about yes. that. I mean, yes. that was I I loved going to New Mexico growing up. Because I I consider myself in the Southwest as well, Colorado. Yeah. So you could understand how, um, you know, it's a little shocking, like, to be from here and then, you know, have all this Eastern U.S. history is like our core content of our American history in all curriculum in the United States. And then there's like two paragraphs on pre-European conquest. And, you know, I think 23,000 years deserves more than two paragraphs. So I really wanted to give it more attention in this series. And we did. But the point of that is you asked me about my target audience. So I think when I'm producing the show, I'm thinking of the kids of my crew age is, about, I, 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 I target kids, typically not four, but I made an exception for that family, but typically it's five to 17. And so, but the target audience I'm thinking of are five to 13 because I really want to reach kids as they're still developing their sense of identity of themselves. One thing I learned was, and this is some stat that's out there, that children think they know what they want to do for a living for the rest of their lives by the time they're 10. And they start fixating on that after that. So if you have no concept at the age of 10 that there's something called a, you know, research biologist and endangered species, if you didn't know that that's a job you could do someday, how would you even know to put that in your catalog of of like, well, maybe I want to do that. So some of what I'm doing is really pulling in all these very different kinds of fields just to expose kids that this exists. You know, you can spend a lifetime like Jerry Dragu, the world skunk expert, studying skunks <laughs> because you love skunks. And and it turns out you then can become the world expert in skunks because <laughs> that's your thing. And and there's so much I love on the children's hour thinking and exposing how much we don't know. So, for example, we just did a show a couple weeks ago on squid. And, you know, they have discovered 300 species of squid. They being the, like, fabulous scientists of the world. They they think that there are many, many, many more species of squid that we do not know about. Now, that is absolute opportunity for future generations to go solve puzzles. And the puzzles we solve in this regard help other fields in, in real practical ways. I mean, like, why do we care how many squid there are? Well, 
the measurement of squid, a ubiquitous squishies in, species in the ocean, <laughs> is absolutely squishies. A squid species Excellent. in the ocean. Yeah, <laughs> um, squid species in the ocean are ubiquitous. As their populations decline, it is a real danger for an overall collapse of our ocean. So it's like things like this that, like, it actually matters if there's squid in wow. the ocean or not. It matters yeah. whether you and I can breathe today that there are squid in the ocean or not. And, you know, I just love thinking about things like that. We're about to do some programming here. I'm teaching the kids how to do field recording, which I think I mentioned. That's wonderful. Yeah. Because we're about to go to a fossil dig site um, here in New Mexico that is 350 million year old rock. The kids get to go with their equipment. We're going as a whole team so I can actually teach some real practical on the ground. And oh, by the way, the kids will all get to go home with little fossils in their pocket. And we're unearthing, you know, 350 million year old cockroaches um, (sighs) that are, I know, I know cockroaches. They're going to be, they were here before us. They'll be here after us and yep. they'll leave a record. So, you know, it's stuff like that that just gives kids a sense of the power of their voice. And that's really what I want to get to is what teaching people that your voice, you, the individual, no matter what your age is. So my target audience is five to 13, but I really, I know my listener demographic is much, much bigger than that. Um, and much wider, including high school kids. So I am very interested in helping everyone realize your voice, your little lonely voice is actually an incredible instrument for change. And for making not only your life exactly as you dream and envision it could be, but the people around you get lifted up as you find your voice. It's actually helpful for everyone around you, you listening, you, whoever you are, you being you or me, as we find our voice, it lifts everyone. So I want to help kids find that voice find that voice so young that it's just a normal thing to have your voice, that it's not, you know, special that I have a voice. It's just everyone has a voice and that every voice has something very unique to contribute in the overall conversation. And it's essential to have every voice or we end up in a situation where only a few voices control it all. And and we mm-hmm. see where that goes. So I'm trying to build up the next generation as a, to understand automatically that they're incredibly powerful. And that's actually true. I mean, people, we know that real uh, advocates for peace and justice around, you know, in our history, like Dr. Martin Luther King and other great people, Mahatma Gandhi, all these wonderful people, they pay a huge price for having this big, powerful voice. So, how how powerful is a voice then if it's so scary for others to have it be heard? That means that all of us have a voice that can be that powerful. I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was just a dude. He was just a guy named Martin, a kid named Martin. That's He started as a child named Martin who didn't, who had modeling of people using their voices around him. And we as adults have that responsibility to teach that, to model that, to be conscious of using our voice and our power to build up, not tear down, and every chance we get. And kids right now are really, I mean, I don't need to tell you how how horrifying and saddening it, it is to know that kids are really under attack right now, literally physically under attack in our schools and, you know, and with gun violence, the, you know, their, their outcomes are not looking good. They're going to live less than we are if we keep going at this trajectory. So this is a time especially where children's producers of all kinds must be mindful that we have a huge responsibility to help, to help overcome, to help drown out the, those who would disempower this next generation. Um, and, and it's really up to us. You know, it's really up to us. No one else is going to do it except for us. Those of us who actually already care enough about kids to work in an industry working with kids. So it's up to us. I mean, every day. So I feel very privileged to be where I'm at in life right now and to be doing my dream job. You know, I, I, 
I grew up as a um, huge fan of Mr. Rogers and Jim Henson, like everybody of my generation. And, um, and they remain among my biggest influences and the cast uh, in Sesame Street. And I really paid attention to how Sesame Street used the normaliz and Mr. Rogers, the normalization of inclusion, the normalization of of just everybody matters. And mm-hmm. that that's our role right now. That's what we have yeah. to do. It has to be just the norm, not the exception. Right now, kids media, we are the exception. It's hard for folks to take us seriously. They'll say, oh, that's just the kids show. And I think to myself, you know, it's funny that just the kids show has been able to, for example, my history curriculum is now being used in schools across New Mexico. I am literally changing how kids are learning history starting this year going forward. They will not look the same way at their peers in their classrooms whose ancestors left those footprints 23,000 years ago at White Sands National Park. I mean, it's a very different way of looking at things, the connectedness of all of us into this incredible culture we're building. And America's an interesting place because unlike everywhere else in the world, we're not homogenous. We're very diverse. But like so many places in the world, we we have uh, a, a small group trying to run our whole country and speak for yeah. all of us. And, and we're right. not a monolith. We're not. There's very, mm-hmm. you know, this being out of Boulder, you know, um, Boulder, yeah. the town with the town with no parents. I like to think of Boulder. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, it's it's our role. It's our job. And what a privilege. Right. And yes, yeah, you get is. to have a lot of fun in the process. Yeah. It is a blast. At the same time, it's serious work. It is. It's the most serious work. And I'm really grateful that there are people like you who are able to encourage these young people to create these amazing works that are enacting change. And I'm so grateful that you are creating a space for people in New Mexico and also around the world who listen to your program to feel empowered to find their own voice. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on your show. I I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's really nice to meet you. Yay! Be sure to check out Katie Stone and the Children's Hour online or anywhere you can listen to the public radio. She's also got a Patreon and she's on all the Apple podcasts and Google podcasts and Spotify podcasts, anywhere you can get podcasts. Also, you can download the Children's Hour learning guides as well as their history of the American Southwest. Thanks for coming on, Katie. This podcast is produced, mixed, and mastered by me, Camille Harris from the Silly Jazz Band. We're under at the Silly Jazz Band on Instagram. And if you want to send us an email, our email is sillyjazzband at gmail.com. Have a great day. Bye.